Let's, let's pray. Lord God, we would ask that uh, in the next few minutes, as we are in your word, that uh, you would allow us to listen distraction-free, that the cares, the worries of the past week or the week to come, um, you just allow us to forget those for the next few minutes. And that your Holy Spirit would be working. In your Son's name we pray. If you haven't, or if you don't, or you're not in the habit of it, as we sing, I would encourage you to anticipate what's to come. Because this. Every time I'm up here, I'm amazed. I don't pick anything out. I have very little input 99.999% of the time, but it just fits. So thank you, Tristan, for being open to God's leading. It just fits. And if you have to go back and watch this again, you can stop before I get up here. But you'll see how it fits. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian king, Sargon II, and I'm sure that rolls off your lips and you remember that from your history classes. Ted does. So two of us. Sargon II invades Israel. Israel was the northern kingdom at this point in Israel's history. It's a divided kingdom. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Sargon II invades Israel to, to rob its wealth, to plunder its resources, and he conquers and destroys Samaria. As you read the New Testament, as you read the Gospels, that is very significant. <laughs> as to how the entire culture worked even those many, 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 several hundred years later. In 705, Sargon dies, he's killed, and his son Sennacherib takes over the Assyrian Empire. And he promptly goes about invading Judah to again plunder its wealth. The Assyrians had defeated, had destroyed Babylon because of their rebellion. And in order to finance those wars and this and that, here he comes to conquer the world. The Assyrians were a bad bunch, as cruel as brutal an empire as there's ever been. They relished their reputation and of brutality. Their standard operating procedure was one of send an envoy ahead of the army with a letter from the king, and you deliver that to the city that you are marching on, and you tell them, we're going to be here in short order. 
And we would advise that when we get there, you throw open the gates, you invite us in, and when we come in, anything that we see that we think we like, we will take. If there's anyone that we deem a threat or we just decide we don't like the way they look, we will kill them. And then we will let your city stand. We will take most of you back as slaves. We will bring in a bunch of others from other countries to help rule what once was yours. And you will all be Assyrian citizens from now on. Now, if you don't like that plan, if you offer any resistance... As long as it takes, we will wait you out until we breach the walls of your city. And when we come in, we will kill, well, we'll eventually kill every man in your city. But after we torture them in the most creative, demented ways that we can imagine... We will take all but the oldest and the most helpless and the most infirm and we will scatter them throughout our empire. And then those that resisted us in other places, we will take them and scatter them and and you just won't even have anything. And what's more, on our way out, we will level your city. There will be nothing. So what do you choose? Many, many cities would just, they would talk it over, and they said, tell you what, not only did they throw open the doors, they took all their wealth outside the city and said, hey, here it is. You can come in and look for more, but here it is. Um, We'll go with plan number one. It seems better for our immediate health. Israel did not go along with that plan. They resisted, they were conquered, and as they came into Judah, and it's interesting to me that we find the account of Sennacherib's invasion, we find that in in 2 Kings, we find it in 2 Chronicles, we also find it in the book of Isaiah, in chapters 36 and 37. Three different places. And so Sennacherib comes in, And one by one by one by one, his armies are destroying and defeating the cities in Judah. Forty-six of them fall. Forty-six of them resist and are utterly destroyed. And you see the circle closing in on Jerusalem. It's during this time that Hezekiah builds his tunnel for water. If you go to Israel today, you can still go through that tunnel built 2,700 years ago. As the circle closes, he sends his envoy to King Hezekiah to Jerusalem. He sends a guy named Rabshakeh to deliver the message. He's a native, well, not a native, but he speaks Hebrew fluently. And he stands out there, delivers the letter. They don't let him in. And Hezekiah says, nah, we aren't going to let you in. We aren't going to let this happen. And so Rob, Shekah is there, and he is taunting God. 
He's defying God. He says, Sennacherib is more powerful than any god. No people, no place, no god has ever been able to stand before him. So what makes you think your god is any different? And the longer you hold out, the worse we will brutalize you when we come in. Don't let your king, don't let your religious leaders fool you. And for days and for weeks, God is defied. For days and for weeks, Sennacherib's spokesman is defiant and shaking his fist in the face of God. He cannot save. He has no power to stop us. Isaiah is, a, Isaiah is being appealed to by Hezekiah. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Your God's voice. What do we do? And we see that he takes this letter and he finally he goes to the temple. And before the altar of God, he lays that letter out, that message. He falls on his face and he cries out. It's like, we've got nothing. Your enemies, our enemies, your enemies are defying you. What are you going to do? What will you do to stop this? What will you do to deliver us, your people? And the word of God comes to Isaiah who goes on to Hezekiah and says, tell you what, because you have humbled yourself before me, there will not be a single Assyrian step foot inside of Jerusalem. Now when you consider 46 towns and cities have already been leveled in the land around. There's a ton of destruction. There's been a ton of disaster and tragedy and hurt and mayhem throughout the country. And yet not one Assyrian will set foot in the city. Through a series of events, coincidence, right? Sennacherib's a little bit distracted. He can't focus all of his energies on Jerusalem. But when he finally takes care of business and settles down to, you're done. As, the armies are, as his, his armies are being marshaled and, 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 and all put, focusing all their energies on Jerusalem, we read that the angel of the Lord came into their camp. And that night, a hundred and 85,000 soldiers died. And the next morning when Sennacherib and those who were left woke up and realized, wow, we don't have much. Maybe their God can stand. <laughs> they turned tail and they went back to Nineveh. And for the next 20 years, Sennacherib left everybody else alone and strove to make Nineveh great again. 
and rebuilding the city and just trying to solidify his rule and trying to help people forget that he had been embarrassed and as a nation they had been decimated and that was the beginning of the end of their empire. Because in this time the Babylonians sensing the weakness began to rise up and, and, and we know what happens in another hundred years. In 681, two of Sennacherib's sons follow him into the temple of his idol and they kill him. And there he dies. And as we read in the scripture, it makes it sound like he went home and was immediately assassinated. No, that wasn't the case, but his time did come. History, the different histories, it's not just in Scripture that we can read this account. The Greeks tell of this in their history. Assyrian history is a little fuzzy on the number killed. You don't want to remember a great defeat. It doesn't look good on a resume. The Babylonians record this. Jewish history outside of Scripture records this. And, and there are differences and inconsistencies in how it's remembered and what it's accounted for. But the one thing that is consistent in all the accounts is that it was divine intervention that saved Jerusalem. I personally am going to go with the account that we see three times in Scripture. And so as I read it, as I see the events in my mind's eye as they take place, I, I sense the uncertainty and just can try to imagine how unsettling at best it would be. I also ask myself the question, what do I take away from this? There are three things that I see. Hopefully you guys see at least 37 others. Maybe not as individuals, but as a group we could maybe come up with 37 other things. Oh, this is what I can take away from this. But first and foremost, don't defy the living God. It doesn't end well for you. Not just like Sennacherib and his spokesman did where they sit there and shake their fist and they dare God to act. I dare you to stop me. I dare you to make the attempt. No God ever has and you are incapable of it also. We live in a culture that is increasingly shaking their fist in the face of God and defying him to his face. And that can either cause us to shrink away, to button our lips, to hide, to put our head down, 
or it can cause us to be more resolute in who we trust and who we follow. To be more careful in the way we live so as to honor the one that is being defied by every, seemingly, the culture around us. But I think sometimes the defiance in our lives isn't the outright, I dare you to do something, God. The defiance comes in the form of us looking the other way. When we're called when we're called to serve, when we're called to reach out, when we're called, when we see a need and we know that it's within us to meet that need or to alleviate in some way. It's like, you know, it's just kind of weird. It's kind of awkward. I haven't talked to that person for six months and now I'm going to... You know, it's the neighbor whose cattle are always out, so you just learn to drive around rather than buy their place because if you don't see it, you don't have to do anything. Maybe that's just our neighborhood. I don't know. <laughs> In Hebrews 3.15, we're told not to reject not to forsake, not to ignore the voice of God when he calls. The long and the short of it, it's defiance. Don't refuse to do what you know is right. And James, the one who knows the right thing to do and yet doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And there are things that's not explicitly laid out where every follower of Christ is supposed to do this thing or do this thing or not. But I know it's what I'm supposed to do. I know this is what God, this is the convictions that I have in my life and I just don't want, I'm tired today or I'm inconvenienced by it today or it's just not worth it today and and to not do that, James calls it sin. God calls it sin. James just reiterates it. And we defy God when we just willfully pursue sin. Temptation's there, and it just looks like more fun now than not, and so I'll deal with the consequences later. And it might be a small thing. Man, I'm just so fed up with so-and-so, and I'm just going to let them know what I think. Or it might be something, could be anything. We know that it's wrong, and yet I do it anyway, because I want to. Don't defy God. It doesn't end well. What do we take away? That when confronted with something that's overwhelming, humble yourself before God Almighty. Hezekiah didn't have a lot of options. Didn't have a lot of good options. He chose the best option 
It's always the best option to humble yourself before God, to go before God, to, to let his people know, I don't have the answer here. I'm deferring. <laughs> I think in the past week or two, there, there are 22 times, there's probably more, but 22 times in Scripture where we see that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposed Sennacherib and his army and their pride and their arrogance, their defiance. He gave grace to the humble. Does that mean the other 46 cities did not humble themselves? Don't know. We don't read that. We know that Hezekiah did. We know that Jerusalem did and they were spared We humble ourselves by recognizing that I'm not the one in charge. I'm not calling the shots, not for my life, not even necessarily for my family. Joked with David this morning a little bit. You know, the kids, they kind of do what they do, and that starts when they're around two. (laughs) And you pray, and you humble yourself before God. Asking him to call your kids so that they make good and godly choices with their life. Because I can't choose for them. I can only humble myself and plead to the one who can. I'm not in charge. I, I need to recognize, I need to humble myself and realize that I'm in desperate need. Even in the best of times, I'm in desperate need I may not always sense it. I may not always realize it. I may not always feel it. But I'm always just a few minutes away from realizing my complete lack of control. Ultimately, I I control two things. I control my attitude and I control my effort. And outside of that, What do I have? I have the creator. I have the living God. I recognize that only God can provide what I need most in any given moment. And sometimes what I, there's a lot of times I don't know what I need most. I know what I find convenient. I know what I want. Hezekiah humbles himself when he prays. God says, you just do what you're going to do. Probably had no idea, no, no sense of expectation of what was about to take place. We don't defy the living God. We humble ourselves before the living God. And I think what follows is that we recognize that God fights for us. One angel, one night, 
185,000. A devastating blow. Ultimately, a empire-ending blow. God fought for his people. And it wasn't even a fight. In Psalm 20, verse 7, the psalmist writes, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but I will trust in the name of the Lord our God. The Assyrians were the first army to utilize a cavalry on a large scale. In fact, as they stood outside of Jerusalem as part of their defiance, they, they said, if you can even, we'll give you 2,000 horses if you can even muster that many men to put on the backs of them. Just even make this fight interesting. They were the first empire to use iron and outfit their entire army with iron weapons, not just bronze. They were formidable. And yet God fought on behalf of the people against insurmountable odds. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul, he's reminding the Corinthian church, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. God fights for his people. In Ephesians 6, 12 through 20, another familiar passage. But Paul is writing to the Ephesian church and he's reminding them that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the neighbor. It's not against whoever it is you think it is. Our struggle is against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And because our fight isn't against necessarily what we can see or feel and touch and smell, therefore take up the whole armor of God so that you can withstand the attacks of the evil one. While it's our fight, it's... It's not my fight. It's God's fight on our behalf. And I defer to him and I lean into him and I humble myself and trust him rather than saying, I can handle this one. I can take this guy. No, God, you can take this guy. In 2 Chronicles 32, verse 22, as this account of God's miraculous provision is wrapped up, this summary statement is made, so the Lord saved Hezekiah 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. We serve a God who provides for us on every side. It's not enough, okay, they left and and your city was spared, but now the entire countryside has been decimated. If you go and read the accounts, you can see how God was going to provide for them on every side going forward. We serve a God that's not content to just do enough, but a God who provides for us on every side. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.